Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. Accountability. Welcome again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. And today, our guest is the chief executive officer, not of one, but two companies. Unstoppable Software, which is a custom software development and technology company working in manufacturing and engineering firms, and Synthica Energy, a renewable fuels and energy company focused on developing anaerobic digestion facilities otherwise known as Biogas. He is a senior software developer and a software engineer in his past with multiple companies, has a BS in computer science, well, that makes sense, from the University of Pittsburgh, and an MBA from Xavier University. He's also a published author in the International Journal of Business Intelligence Research, an article on test-driven development of data warehouses. I always love these titles in these business journals uh, by these PhDs and stuff. So test-driven development of data warehouse. Don't know what that means, but maybe we'll find out today. Welcome today's guest to Leading from the Front, Sam Schutte. How you doing, Sam? Very good. Thank you for having me. So Sam, talk to me a little bit about how you became the CEO of two companies. Obviously, you got started in your education in computer science at the University of Pittsburgh. But then what happened? And bring us up to date on where you are today. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, I started Unstoppable Software, which is my technology consulting business, about 13 years ago. Actually, I was probably about like halfway through getting my MBA at that time. And of course, you know, I always wanted to start my own company. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I actually had had a couple sort of trial runs at at entrepreneurship previously, sort of before that time even, but they were all sort of part-time side efforts. And yeah, I had a part-time side effort. I was a paper boy when I was, you know, ten years old. Is that what you're talking about? Uh, I did that too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, I did that. I did that as well. But more like, you know, like tech companies. I had an e-commerce company at one point with a couple partners in like 2003. Even that it was just something nights and weekends we would do. And and so those aren't full kind of full entrepreneurial efforts per se, because we still were doing a lot of other things. But so I started the consulting business and and that's really where I spend uh, certainly a good chunk of my time, obviously, is building and working and managing my team of developers to build custom software systems for our clients. And basically, we bolt on to companies in healthcare, manufacturing, engineering, industrials to help them innovate faster and, and build new systems. I, I think as I was working... So you're leading, you're leading software development terms, uh, teams all the time yeah. in, in implementing these custom software applications, right? Yeah, and that and also really helping our customers figure out what it is they need to do. Uh, and then also providing maintenance and support of some of, for some of their existing legacy systems too, which is kind of a newer offering we're getting into instead of always just being the guys that build new stuff, right? So I've been doing that for about 13 years. You know, I always have had an interest and a passion for green technology. And I think when you get your MBA and when you study on that, you're, you know, you're learning how to lead and be the CEO of a company in a lot of different industries. It's not really industry dependent, right? And there's a lot of crossover and a lot of common skills. And so for whatever reason, you know, 
I like the, the idea anyway of whatever I'm doing entrepreneurially to also sort of have some diversification, right? Uh, if 100% of everything you're doing is in tech, there's risks to that, right? Just like if you if every stock you owned was a tech stock, okay? Now, previously, I had several times started and sort of started to do like product development of our own to come up with our own software products, sort of spinning those out from the consulting business. And that's a common thing you see, right? Is a software consulting business makes a software product, right? But then you're still just software, 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 software. And it's and it's a highly risky engagement because you're you're creating something you're actually a lot of people may not know this but there are more laws in place for software patent protections than anything else in the world i mean there's just all of that so you're trying to protect your intellectual property you're trying to compete in a world where things are moving so quickly so developing your own software is not just a challenge but it's very very risky yeah and in fact i mean and that's the thing is you know i would say that if you were to sit down and come up with 100 ideas for software products in any particular niches or industries anywhere almost just about almost all of them either somebody would already have done and then maybe you're not an innovator or somebody's patented i mean there's these patent trolls out there that patent these things like crazy and yeah, you can you can come up with new ideas, but then how much are you going to spend to find out and verify that it's new? I mean, are you going to spend $100,000 paying attorneys to search for that and find that and verify how many ideas before you pick the right one? So it is very complicated. And the other thing, too, is the tech industry in general, the growth is not what it was in, you know, I think this is, a, I'm making a generalization, but the growth is not what it used to be in perhaps the dot-com boom and some of the earlier eras, right? Like, yes, there are still companies that come out of nowhere. I mean, if you look at like TikTok has 500 million users now, right? Some of those social media platforms do explode. But I think it's kind of old news in a way of like, oh, technology is on fire. I mean, everybody's like, yeah, you know, we know that. And, And for any real strong, at least business software, there's usually a lot of good options out there, right? And when you talk about technology, there's a certain level of maturity that you get into where it becomes more and more difficult to enter the market. Yeah. Because now with uh, artificial intelligence and other levels of technology that just the average person on the street, maybe 30 years ago, could do some uh, web development or things in their in their basement, unless you're extremely brilliant and a genius you're not going to be starting companies up like that much anymore. The big companies are investing in very large projects or larger ways and faster ways to develop these things. And in some cases, just start it and AI finishes it. Uh, do you do you have an AI computer in your in your closet that uh, does all your cost <laughs> software development for you? I, no, 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 not yet. No. But but you're right. <laughs> that, you know, twenty twenty maybe twenty eight years ago, twenty six years ago, you know, Jeff Bezos could start Amazon. Like, hey, I'm going to make a website to sell books, and it's like it's revolutionary. I mean, it's not so easy anymore, right? And right. and I think so. All those kind of factors combined. Whereas I think if you if you look at renewable energy and the green energy market, it's like, wow, now this is a market that is extremely young in its infancy in certain sectors. I mean, and you look at like, for instance, solar energy, which has just exploded in the last even five years, the amount of uh, investment in companies in that space. There's a lot of really, there's a, I think there's a lot of opportunity for growth. So I wanted to have a way to play in that, right? So I kind of, st- I actually kind of okay. came up with a name uh, Synthica, which the idea is, is at the time was to have some sort of synthetic energy source was the idea, right? Which is kind of a not really a thing, but that was that was the the idea. That was probably you know eight nine years ago, maybe I, I first <laughs> thought of that. 
and then kind of eventually hunted around until I found and, and got connected with some people with the right backgrounds in a space that kind of made sense. So I always kind of wanted to be um, in, you know, synthetic fuels of some kind was the idea, right? Uh, and so what Synthica has evolved into, we incorporated it officially, I think, just about three years ago, yeah. um, is a anaerobic digestion development company. And so what's been cool about that is, I mean, obviously, since I didn't know a whole lot about that industry, fast track learning that industry for for three or four years here and being the leader of that company from scratch, but while same at the same time sort of being able to apply some of the skills that I've, I had gained from the technology world, right? It's been a really neat mix. Yeah, let me ask you a question yeah. about that. And uh, you have you have employees with Synthica now? Uh, no, uh, well, we we have consultants, uh, people a small team, yeah, yeah, yeah small, so okay. consultants and some vendors. It, yeah, it's a different market. It's a different functional requirements and learning and understanding and knowing that the technology of the energy industry um, versus software development. Do you see any difference? in the way you lead those teams in those two different well, companies? Well, uh, I mean, there's there's certainly some similarities, I think, in that, um, you know, you you have to identify requirements. You know, it's, it's a little bit different since in the consulting business, of course, we are working on behalf of a, of a client, right? Granted, I mean, we're, we're certainly have our customers best interests and minds for anaerobic digestion as well, but we're not building the thing custom for them. Okay. So it's, that's certainly a little bit different in terms of like, like the customer's needs for uh, our AD plants are much more narrow. Like we just have to basically do a couple things for them and that's what they want. You know, and I think since on the uh, AD side, I mean, most of the work we're doing right now is, is working with our engineering team, which is an, a separate, engineering company we've hired to do all the engineering and permitting and construction and, and all that stuff. So then it's just basically a whole lot of vendor management is essentially what you might think of it, right? Where we're the customer and, and we're managing them. So it's, it's very different. Um, where it's similar, I think, is on the software side, I, you know, there's certainly a big part of my time where we, I am selling uh, services, business services to uh industrial clients, right? And manufacturing clients. And that's the same thing that we do for, for our ID plant. Cause we're selling uh, disposal of organic wastes, food waste, stuff like that to manufacturing clients. Right. So there's a lot of crossover there. So what I'm, what I'm hearing you say is you may have a different delivery uh, business model, but is the leadership of that really any different yeah. in terms of having mission and values and goals people are understanding the alignment of priorities and moving down that path together. Cause I, I talk about leadership is leadership is about people. Management is about things. Okay. And it, is it, is it really that much different when you have yeah. a company where you're, you're working with um, other engineering companies that are trying to get things done for you. You still have to lead them. You have to have a clear priorities and, and mission and goals, and but you still have to lead them. They've got to be motivated in order to be able to yeah. get the work done. And the relationship that you have with them is going to be very, very important. Yeah, I, th I, th I think you're right. I think they're in a lot of ways they're not different in that regard because you and you also have to like whether it's a software project or a construction project or like ours a chemical processing facility, whatever you want to call it. You have to right. make sure everybody knows like what's important, 
right? Like what are the priorities of what's important here, right? Because software developers, it can be cloudy to them or murky if you don't say, here is what really matters. Like the security with this customer, security is the number one thing, right? Because they're a bank, whatever, right? Other customers, the number one thing is it has to be super easy to use, right? And I think for any given uh, at least for our type of energy facilities, every plant is different. Uh, we're we're working on. We have three plants right now. We're working on one is the furthest along, and you know, other two sort of earlier in development. But each one is very different. You know, one you know will be more focused yeah. on a different kind of feedstocks that we get, and so that changes a lot of things. And, and the regions they're in is different. You know, so there's different sort of like parties involved. But you do have to kind of for those engineers, help them understand, like, here's what really matters. Here's what you should focus on. It's not about uh, worrying about how much output we have or worrying about whatever. The priority is X, Y, and Z. So, Yeah, so let's let's stop back up for a second and talk about the uniqueness of your situation that you're in. Because there's not a lot of people out there that have multiple companies that they're leading as a CEO. I've got a, a close friend of mine, met a friend of mine for about 10, 11 years. When I first met him, he had four companies. And they were they were smaller companies uh, from a million to like eight million, uh, but he still had four companies, uh, four teams, four different, completely different types of businesses. I mean, one was a was a truck repair business, one was a shed building business, one was a, a metal refinishing business, and the other one was a, a specialty engineering company. So, and then when I originally talked to him, I said, "So, and I'm going to ask you the same question: How do you keep?" all those priorities straight. I mean, what's what's the key within the organizations so that you're not working 100 hours a week? Yeah. Well, I, I think the answer to the last bit of, piece of that question is just having people that you can trust and people you can really rely on, especially like within the, uh, the software business that, you know, I'm not sitting there work, spending 10, 20 hours a week on each client. Right. And I think I, I think, you know, I've, we've instituted a great kind of egalitarian culture there where everybody sort of has authority to make decisions. Now, some things, if they just don't know the right decision, they'll come up to me and say, Hey, they want this. I don't think, I mean, I try anyway to not make it that they're afraid to make decisions because I think that can be really bad. And so, you know, if we have five or six clients in software projects going on at any given time, because we're typically doing, you know, pretty large size projects, so we're not doing 50 at a time, right? My involvement with them is typically just like a weekly check-in and making sure, you know, checking schedules and looking stuff like that, making sure developers are on track. If it's a larger project, then I'll have, you know, a team leader doing that for me as well, where he's checking people's times and schedules and stuff, right? So it's sort of a... Yeah, hold on hold on a second. I want to I back up for a second, because something that you said that's a real key here is, and, and I want to dig into a specific that you said, the authority to make decisions. Yeah. Okay. And most of the time they can, and occasionally they come to you. But you said something that's really important. What you said was that you have to get rid of them being afraid to make a decision. Okay. How do you do that? I mean, I think basically by letting them fail and then not blowing up at them about it the first time they fail. I mean, that's one important part. Ah. And I think I'm not going to say I've always been good at that because I think that's something you realize like, "Ah, gosh, I I shouldn't have chewed that guy out, especially early on. You know, everything is always. But this is a a really important piece. It really it's something that some leaders don't realize because entrepreneurs are so connected to the outcomes. They're so connected to the future of the company. When something goes wrong on a, on a major project, it can be a serious, big risk and a financial burden. So it's hard to maintain that emotional stability. And yet 
the greatest damage can be done. Like you said, if you explode, you sit there and you go, oh no, make the decision, make the decision, make decisions. And you go, what the hell did you do making that decision? You know, that's it. You're just cutting your nose off to spite your face then. So when did you come to that realization? And now at a level of leadership maturity that says, you don't do that anymore and here's why. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. You're trying to get rid of the fear of making a decision, let them fail. But there had to be a process you went through. Tell me the story. There had to be a story behind huh. this. I, I don't know. I'd have to. I'd have to think about what when that even occurred. I mean, it's been a long thirteen years, I suppose. You know, but I think it's. I think there was there was certainly some time early on where I sort of felt like people were being too hesitant and maybe asking me about too many things, too many decisions, and so I think. I seem to recall a time where it was like, look, you know, do this, you know, just go and do this. Right. So the um, first step, the first step is the awareness that they were coming to you for too much. Yeah. Basically, and, like if I have to do this level of oversight, it's I, I'm it's just really going to limit what I can do. Right. Yeah. And, and then I think and, and also like everybody kind of independently gets there at their own pace. Right. Like a new person coming in is not going to just start driving things, right? They have to learn the way we do things. And I think that's the second part is like the recognition that there is a way that we do things. How, right? do, you, how do you express to people the way we do things? It's tricky. I mean, it's a learned thing, you know, like I have found that it's almost something that people kind of learn on the job, you know, like, so like I have a new guy right now, a new developer that I'll say, okay, go do this, right? And he'll do it, but maybe not exactly how I would have done it, right? Well, I'm not going to, exploded him about it like i said but I, use it as a learning opportunity you know talk to him about it try to drive right. the right way and then eventually you know he'll learn okay next right. time i do that what he expects me to do is you know xyz right and then it just builds and builds and builds on top of that you know that that's the the coaching that's coaching and training as you're doing it and uh, i'm going to get into the three questions around that in a second but in your in terms of your culture and people learning that if you have a mission statement, values and goals and a strategy and direction, people have that. That gives them the foundation for making those decisions. Now, I'm going to assume yeah. that your organizations have those missions, values, statements, and people have that foundation. Yeah, I mean, we've well, I mean, we've written many of those, many variations of those things sure. over the years for sure. Yeah. But that's just because the mission tells you what to do. The values tell you how to do it, how to treat each other. Okay, yeah. that's the purpose yeah. of it. Yeah. So, you know, you give them that, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a little insight into our three questions for somebody that's new. And if you don't use this, it's it's free of charge. Here's the deal. Somebody does something new, <laughs> the first thing you ask them when they've completed the assignment is you look at it and you say to them, What do you like about this product that you put out? What do you like? And they'll they'll tell, Oh, I like this, or I did this, or I went over here, and they'll tell you what they're thinking and how they went about it. Say, so, okay, if you started all over again, what would you do differently with this code? Mm -hmm. And, and they might they might tell you and they might in fact they might tell you some of the things that you are mm -hmm. going to tell them and by them telling you you are assessing competency assessing what they yeah. learned by doing the activity and when you say I got some other suggestions for you are you ready to hear them uh, we always ask for permission and even in training you know are you ready to hear it? Or do you need five minutes you know <laughs> but you're going to hear yeah. it because there's some standards that we have in the company and normally if you ask the three questions in that order what did you like yeah. What would you do differently? Are you ready to hear some input on this? And you do it, they will hear very, very clearly the two or three points that you want them to improve on rather than at face value, telling them what you think they needed to do differently. And half of them, they learned by doing. 
but you don't know what they are because you didn't ask the question. Makes yeah, sense? That's true, because people say, well, no, I, I would, I would, I was going to do that. I know that. I, and then they kind of get automatically defensive, right? I mean, and, and like you said, you're kind of um, not letting them tell you what they learned. I mean, I, I think the other thing too that I, that I always try to do is like, that I've learned that works well is, you know, uh, if you need to, uh, you know, correct people or, or whatever you want to call it on a certain things that they did wrong is, you know, give them, give them two positives for every negative kind of thing. You know, don't, don't come in and say, here's a list of 10 things you did wrong. Cause I mean, nobody's going to enjoy that meeting very much and they're going to be pretty demoralized, um, afterwards, you know, but, right. you know, try, try to be, uh, Try, you got to recognize what people did right. And most people do a lot of things right, you know. Or as Ken Blanchard says in The One Minute Manager, One Minute Praising, catch people doing things almost right, you know, and and, and help them develop yeah. it. That's that's yeah. close. That's almost. And when I say almost, do you know what part I'm saying is not done right? And you ask them. And they might say, yeah, I, I screwed this up because I had to get this deadline done. Here's the deadline. If I was to do it over again, I would do this, this, and this. And you go, oh, okay. We understand each other. Go back to work. Professionals do not like to be told how to do something that yeah. they already know how to do. Nobody does. So that's why we have these three questions in our leadership program that we teach. So let me ask you another question. You've got great, you got great teams, great cultures. You're really doing this. You're kicking ass. This is awesome. But let me ask the question. What happens and what's happened to you in 13 years? You have had to have someone that didn't fit. And and what did you do about that? Sure. Probably multiple people, right? <laughs> so, I mean, I will say, I think I've been pretty fortunate that most people have been really great fits. I think I've been, I've been either good at screening or hiring that, that we have had, I, I think, relatively minimal misfires on, on hiring compared to at least just other friends of mine I talked to that struggle and it's a revolving door, right? However, yeah. I think my my mistakes with those folks that were not good fits is at least like a couple folks I can think of is I really liked them personally and I'm a I'm a people person, I'm very personal and so personable. So, you know, these are people that I'm like, "Hey, it's my buddy," you know, like I like talking to him because we get on the phone and we talk about all kinds of fun stuff and whatever and what how much we're into guitars or something or whatever right and, and so you start to feel like this is your friend and that can start to become a negative influence on the fact yeah. that they, they're not doing the job they need to do and, and of course you know you try to do all those things to get them to fix that like we talked about you know the, the course corrections the training the coaching whatever but some people just aren't going to get it most of the time because at least in my instance because of ego because they think that they already know better than you and so they don't need your advice, right? And so I, I think in a couple of cases where we've had issues, it's like waiting, basically giving them way too much time, mm -hmm. waiting way too long mm -hmm. to, to make a decision. You know, I think that the very first guy I ever had to basically fire, I think I, I decided I was going to get rid of him and told him, and then he talked me out of it somehow, <laughs> right? And then he stayed a little longer, and then finally I was like, no, I don't know why that happened. Like, I'm sorry, this is not working. You're gone. So I'm just like, I, you know, why did I let him talk me out of it? That's crazy, right? Like, he's not going to be a great team member if you've already said, I need to let you go. But this was, you know, the, I had never really, I mean, when I started the company 13 years ago, I had never hired anybody before, you know, even as a, even working for other people. Sure. So, so I had to learn a lot of that just sort of on my own 
uh, knuckles or whatever, I suppose. Right. And it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, especially if you like the person and, uh, yeah. I have uh, a, a team of statarians that work for me and occasionally they'll do something that's not aligned with our brand and our, our levels of standards and things. And the approach that I take quite often, Sam, is I just walk up to him and I say, so, um, I have to put my CEO hat on right now. And you and I need to sit down and have a talk. And these are professionals. And they usually look at me and they go, yeah, mm-hmm. I know what this is about. And I'm like, oh, okay, tell me what it's about. And they'll tell me. And 99% of the time, they're absolutely right. And I say, so you're a professional. What am I thinking right now? You know, and, and I actually just coach them through that. And then if I need to reinforce it at the end, if you have several of those conversations where like, especially with when you talk sure. about great teams, if they're not getting along on the team or their work product isn't up to the standards that you expect, Say, well, if you can't get it up to the work standards that we expect, what do you think is going to happen? Well, these are these are smart people. Uh, I know it's going to happen. You're probably going to have to let me go. That's right. So, what can we do to not let that happen? Yeah. You know, now. Well, and it's it, and it's interesting. Uh, you know, I think the other thing too is like it, it can when you're a software developer and you hire a software developer, right? So you say, okay, if I if if this person is good and I like them and I like them on my team, then they stay. But if I don't like them and they write crappy code, then they should go, right? And and it's almost just like it's you know it's it's very like almost touchy feely, but it's easy to tell. Like, are they a good software developer or not? If right. not, they have to go. But I think when you kind of diversify more and start hiring different kinds of people, different kinds of roles, right? Then that's challenging too because it's like, well, am I being fair? Am I being unfair? You know, so like the very first salesperson I ever hired, I've hired a, a few salespeople and, and I have found that and most people have told me that, you know, salespeople are harder, really hard to find good salespeople and hard to manage. And it's a whole it's very different in a way than like software developers, I think, or at least it has some differences. Oh, there are a lot of differences. In fact, my my first book was Mastering Sales Leadership, Learning to yeah. Herd Cats. Okay, so uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's a significant difference in 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 the type of personalities. But yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, and and so I found that like since I didn't really have the role nailed down for you know and expectations nailed down for some of those different roles I was I was hiring, then it's like, well, how do I really know? I can't just gut feel like are they a good developer? Yes, no. Yeah. Uh, like I could with a, a software developer, but the salesperson is like, well, I don't know, like. How much time should they have to hit the quota that I wanted them to hit? Am I, I mean, is it unreasonable to give them six months, a year? What, you know, like they're new. I don't know, like 18 months. What, you know, because you're just kind of, it's not like anybody can tell you the right answer. Well, actually, right? there is the right answer. But, <laughs> but, and you've probably found over the years, Sam, you've, you've, you've hit the nail right on the head. It depends. Number one. Number two, yeah. it is six to 12 months for anything to happen. Number three, the, yeah. what's most important is first activity level. Do they have the activity level at the, at the point where they should be? Do they have the yeah. pipeline growing? And are they making progress? When any one of those starts to go backwards, that's when you have a problem. And that's, that's the part that's difficult because there's un- intangibles with sales that says it's activity level first. Yeah. And in one of my chapters in my book, I talk about quantity, quality, and qualification, the three Qs, quantity, quality, qualification. Yeah. So you assess those things and look at progress. If you're making progress, you keep them. Because like you said, good salespeople are hard. They're really hard to find. Let's get back to this thing, though, about waiting too yeah. long. And the principle I've always used, hire slow. It sounds like you do that. Fire fast. Hire slow, fire fast. And I like to say hire slow, fire medium fast. Because what you said was, if I've got someone who you don't like and they're not a good developer, they're easy. 
if they're if you really like them and they're a great developer, they're easy. It's the mm, ones that are yeah. great developers, but you don't like them and they don't get along with the team. Yeah. Those are the hardest ones because that you your gut is telling you to get rid of them, but they're producing great results. So I I agree that those guys would be hard. I don't think I've had too many of those guys. I've had more guys that I really like, but they're not a great developer, probably. Right? You know, uh, which is it's the other inversion right. of that, right? Right. Yeah, but that takes time. So you try to find things that they can do. You find a seat on the bus because it's hard to find good people. And I I've got larger companies that spend anywhere from three to four years. Yeah finding a seat on the bus, the uh, metaphor that uh, uh, Jim Collins uses in Good to Great is first, it's first who, then what, get the right people on the bus and then get the people in the right seats on the bus. And that's what you're talking about. And there's multiple seats in bigger companies. There's a lot of different seats, but in a small company, you don't have that many seats. Well, (laughs) and that's the thing is, you know, because sometimes changing the role, I think, can help because typically, like, if it's someone that you... I don't know, get along with personally, which I do think is important. Like if, if you're the world's greatest developer, but everybody hates you, then yeah, you have to go. Like, I mean, nobody is, especially in our business of consulting, it's pretty critical that clients don't call me saying, this guy just insulted me and told me that only intelligent people would understand what he said or something, right? Which, you know, is the type which of never thing... never happens in technology, right? right. Oh, you no. Know, well, <laughs> no. I've, I've heard of such things being said to people. And, but if it's someone that, is really personal, then it's like, you know, clients really like this person. They're just not a code writer. Maybe they can be, you know, better as some kind of customer success manager or support person, or, you know, there's a lot of other roles. But then the question is just, do you have those roles in your organization when you're small, right? I think when you're a really big company, that's when there's a lot of seats on the bus, right? But, you know, if if you're a small company, there's just not a whole lot of seats and that gets to be tricky. So, I don't think I have that solved per se, but I think it's something that I am more mindful of, especially when I'm hiring for different roles of different type of people and different types of, you know, even vendors and stuff that I'm working with that are, you know, I mean, uh, if I hire a social media vendor or something, I mean, there's like, okay, what are the expectations and, and what's, what's going to get them fired and what's going to get them another project? You know, I think you have to be very conscious of laying those things out, you know, and, and in terms of like firing medium fast or whatever you said there, I think. I mean, that can be a little tricky too. I think even at big companies that say, well, we have a 90-day probationary period, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, it's not a black and white thing all the time. I mean, it can be. Like you could say, look, you have to sell 90,000 units in 90 days or you're gone, no exceptions, right? But is that kind of draconian policy good? Because what if it's a great person that has 89,999, right? Um, That's... Sam, that's why you're an entrepreneur, because you get to make those decisions yourself and you don't have to be held to some kind of ridiculous standard that somebody else has. So you get to be that humanistic side, which is, as we talk about in our leadership definition, it's being compassionately accountable. You know, you want to be humanistic, you want to be empathic, you want to really understand the human and you have to hold them accountable. And it's not either or, it's both at the same time. So let me, let me wrap this up, Sam, with a question for you that I always like to ask my podcast guests. So you go back 13 years or maybe 20 years and you write Sam a letter and you write him a letter and you say, Sam, this is what you ought to pay attention to. This is what I'd like to give you some advice on as your older self. What would you write? It's a good question. I I was very dissatisfied and unhappy as an employee in places. I, I probably spent, you know, I worked at probably five or six, seven different companies before I started my own. And I probably liked 
five out. I probably liked one or two out of those seven, <laughs> you know? And so I, I, I think I was, I don't know. I was just, maybe that's what it took to motivate myself enough to start my own thing. The first thing that pops into my head is just sort of like, you know, you've got time. And I think this is true. This is what I give a lot of people advice now. Like it's never too late. You've got time, time to figure out what you want to do and what kind of company or what kind of role or job you want to do. You don't have to have everything figured out, you know, when you're 22, 24, or even 50, right? Some of the wealthiest guys I, I know in my personal network were, I believe, 51 or 52 when they started their company. They had never had a company before and they retired with, you know, multiple millions of dollars each, right? So, you know, I've, I've got 10 years on before those guys even started, right? You know, <laughs> so I think that's, that's probably the first thing that pops into my head. And so you would have told yourself to just be patient and trust, trust yeah. the path, right? Trust the process. Cause I, one of the things I wrote down here when you were younger, you said you always wanted to be an entrepreneur. There are very few of us that become entrepreneurs at 20, 22 years old. Some people can do it. I was an army officer. I was in manufacturing for 10 years. I didn't think about starting my own business until I was out of college for 14 years. And I started my first business and I did. And I survived for six years, but it was rough. I went back into the corporate world realizing there was a lot of other things that I needed to put in place. So I learned Mm -hmm. a lot along the way, and I'm sure that you did. And I think that's the thing for entrepreneurs. It's not not just doing something it's learning from something every single time. And if you can do that, regardless of where you are, then someday, whether it's in your 30s or your 50s, I started this company in my yeah. 50s. I got my doctorate when I'm 55 years old so that I could be Dr. Gary just to make it sound important. And there we are. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, we all do it on our different path. And that's, that's a good thing. So Sam, I'm going to thank you for your, uh, your thoughts, your inputs. I love the things that you said about building great teams and, and talked a lot about, you know, hiring the right people to get started. And sometimes we wait too long to fire people, but I got to say that I think that's the most important decision that we can make in uh, people's lives is the hiring and firing. And we should not take that responsibility lightly. And I can tell that you don't. So I appreciate that. So thanks for being a, a great guest today. Appreciate it. No, my pleasure. And thanks for having me. And uh, definitely appreciate the questions and the conversation. And uh, it's always good to kind of give me a chance to think back of, well, what what did I do there? And maybe maybe some of these things I need to think of more about, you know? So uh, yeah, thank you. Well, I, I know you helped our listeners think about some of those things as well. And information that and ways to get a hold of Sam we will put in the in the show notes so that you can contact Sam either through uh, his email address or through LinkedIn. I am Dr. Gary making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability and this has been leading from the front. Thank you and be well. Take care. Thanks for being with us on leading from the front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S dot com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.